0: Hi, this is your host Pete Bloom. Welcome to American Heroes Network. Our core mission is serving the brave men and women who have sacrificed to ensure our freedom. You will hear true stories from those that have served, learn about veteran organizations and resources, and gain hope for your future knowing American Heroes Network, your community, and other veterans are here and at the ready to serve and help you and your family. We will talk about the hard topics like PTSD and TBI. You will also hear military history, inspirational stories, learn about networking with the community, and more. So come join us and be part of our family. So today is the date we take American Heroes Network from a radio show to a podcast. You can call it Embracing Technology, but the fact is that podcasts are taking over and leaving radio in the dust. American Heroes Network has been an established radio show for nearly seven years, and we have helped many veterans. Now we're taking the opportunity to reach veterans and their families no matter where they are. Today's guest is the founder of American Heroes Network, an Army veteran, former national historian for the Military Order of the Purple Heart, and an overall amazing man. I would like to welcome Jim Klug. Jim, welcome and tell us the significance of today's date and why you wanted to launch the podcast today.
1: Well, Pete, thanks for uh, bringing me on and uh, for really Being the point man for bringing us back on air. We've gone several, several years, almost seven, like you have just said, Pete, and we have tried as diligently as we possibly could to do one thing and do it the very best possible, and that's to serve veterans in any and every way possible, to bring them the most current, up to date information that is pertinent to every veteran that returns from active duty and even those veterans that are even engaged in their service commitment as we speak. And so, Pete, there's a tremendous effort in our community and across the nation for those that love and support the veterans. And our effort here on American Heroes Network is to serve the brave men and women who have sacrificed to ensure our freedom. And that's our total dedication. And, Pete, we are really pleased here. This transition has been rather complicated because we've switched gears from a uh, live broadcast that's been recorded to... um, now podcasts and that effort in a podcast world is it has its own disciplines. And Pete, we're so proud to have you lead out in this and be that person that can bring pertinent information to our veteran community and those that really are there that you know our background support in all that a veteran needs. And that's the one thing that is so important for every veteran is to have somebody to come home to and have that appreciation and understanding. And Pete, it's just a good thing to be here with you this morning. And the significance of our broadcast today, today is the day that the very first printing in the days of just before we became a nation under the leadership of General George Washington, he found himself without any funds, without any support, the patriots that were fighting tirelessly for years through the cold and through the heat and the humidity and the deprivation that only combat can bring and all the loss of their friends and their assets. They weren't even being paid, and General George Washington knew that that sacrifice had to be recognized somehow. So on August 7th, 1782, at his headquarters in Newburgh, New York, General George Washington set out in his general orders of that morning to be read to the men and officers that he had created something that still today is recognized as one of the most coveted awards that can be earned, and that earning process is rather unique, and I'll get into that, but on August 7th, 1782, General Washington created the Badge of Military Merit. And the records that survived are rather sparse, but the significance of that, Pete, is that that award and on the backside of today's Purple Heart, it says for military merit. And that gives credit and recognition back to our first general and our first president, General George Washington, as he created the Badge of Military Merit, which then finally in 1932 became the Purple Heart. And on August 31st, 1782, The Providence Gazette and Country Journal magazine newspaper became the very first printed information that went out to the general public that came out by written word of that creation of the Badge of Military Merit. And our nation, even today, does recognize that sacrifice for those that were wounded or killed by the enemy in hostile exchanges. And the awarding of the Purple Heart is something that I say earned. Nobody set out to get it. It isn't like a valor, like, let's say, the silver star, bronze star and or the medal of honor. But it is something that none of us plan to think, well, I think I'm going to join the military and I hope I come back with at least a couple of purple hearts on my chest. Well, that doesn't set out that way. It's something that happens quite by chance, but it obviously is a situation that the difference between life and death and the awarding of a purple heart is not up to our choosing. God alone has that end result already written in the book and uh, of life and or of death. And so that's the significance of today as we broadcast, Pete. Besides welcoming you and uh, being able to come on here for the very first time, Pete, in our very first uh, podcast, it's also to say the oldest decoration of 237 years of history have evolved behind those that serve. And the Purple Heart is given to all branches, and we're proud of it. There's organizations that dedicate themselves exclusively to that, and that's the military or the Purple Heart. In order to be a member, you have to have proof and verification and that you, in fact, have received that award.
0: Well, Jim, you know, it's very humbling that we're kicking it off based on that fact and so many years ago. And I'm telling you, it's certainly an honor to be you know, working with you and the team to take American Heroes Network to the next level, into the new generation with podcasting. Definitely love doing it, been doing it a long time, and really happy that we're going to be taking this show and, and helping more veterans and their families. We're going to be talking about some military history because like what you said is just fascinating and these are things that we want to make sure people don't forget and other things, tough issues like PTSD and veteran suicide, and how we can help others to prevent that from happening, and talking about resources and programs and things that can help veterans and their families. And then all of this information and all of these episodes will be listed on the website where people can find them, listen to them later, or click on a link to a particular resource. So the goal and the mission is a very important one, and I'm really dedicated and proud to be a part of it. I guess one thing then is to let everybody know a little bit about us, Jim. Could you talk a little bit about your life in the military and how it was for you?
1: Pete, your background also, uh, you're not going to escape this because your sacrifice and service for this nation is, again, part of the heritage. So we're going to come back to have you share that that you brought to our nation. Peter was back in 1967. Uh, I was starting up my third year of college in the California school college system as a architect with a minor in business. And uh, I was in a transfer program to Taliesin West out of Scottsdale, Arizona, Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, School of Architecture. And I had always appreciated the craft and skill that well-trained individuals could bring forth out of such basic materials as uh 4s and all the framing members and steel and glass and, and concrete. And so 1967, it was the summer of just prior to my being drafted in February of 67. And I got the notice from the military, they didn't carry your deferment while you were in school. And I was in school because that's what I did. I left high school and went right into college as most of us did. But 67, it was February 14th, 1967. I landed at Fort Ord, California, and that began the process of basic training and that preparation for whatever the government at that point said, that's going to be your uh, MOS, your job in the military. And I was soon notified that I was off for infantry, which most of us that were drafted at that point in time found ourselves, the greater number found ourselves is about seven to one ratio. and I've heard as high as 12 to one ratio that for every boot on the ground infantry individual, there's seven to 12 individuals on the backside support. And those are most important. I uh, many times am approached by individuals that say, well, I didn't fight like you did. And I'll always say to them, no, you gave me the privilege of being alive. You gave me what was necessary to keep me alive. Meaning all the equipment, all the ammunition, the total logistics behind every soldier is absolutely necessary. You couldn't do it by yourself. There's no way to do it. As perhaps we alluded to a little earlier, what General George Washington found, there was nothing to back up the troops. They were remelting materials, uh, lead and everything else just to fight. But I discovered early on that I was headed off then to uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana for my uh, advanced infantry training. And of course, that was a real eye-opener as they literally dropped us in the swamps and taught us how to fight in ugly environments that ultimately we would encounter in Vietnam. And so I found myself in Vietnam as as I was trained in AIT. I was actually trained as 11 Charlie, which is light mortars. And light mortar is that that you could carry in the field. Heavy mortars is a different MOS, which is the four deuce and the big guys like that. So once I got in country, Pete, I found myself actually serving as 11 Bravo, and I carried the M79 grenade launcher because of that training. And additionally, I uh, found myself proficient with the forty five caliber, you know, 1911 Colt. I shot perfect score on it of 83. And so that drew a little bit of attention by the cadre as they said, how'd you do that? And you remember what Forrest Gump said? He said... <laughs> drill sergeant, I did exactly what you told me to do. If I kept myself pretty relaxed, you know, and just kept the barrel down range, it probably wasn't going to hurt me as much as it was going to hurt the guy down the range. And I knew the effectiveness of it. My father had taught me how to use a pistol. And though we lived in an area that we didn't get to use it much, I did pay attention to that single detail of paying attention and uh, acquiring a target and squeezing that round off. So. In-country, I carried the M79, and I carried a pistol, one of the few individuals that outside of the officers, the general infantry doesn't carry a 45 pistol, but I carried one for my entire year as a uh, infantryman. And probably if I were to maybe highlight Pete a few of the worst of the worst, I found myself with the 1st Battalion, 12th Infantry of the 4th Infantry Division, and we were stationed in one of the largest geographical corps in Vietnam, and that was two corps. And that was the Central Highlands. And we fought in three canopy jungle and incredible smoldering, almost like fog, uh, humidity in the air in the summer and monsoon rains that were just phenomenal. I mean, it was as intense as a car wash, the downfall of rain during the rainy season and even the dry season. It's like Most of the areas in tropical areas, even the dry season is wet beyond anybody's understanding. So I learned pretty well quick off how to survive that. But very first battle of major significance was Hill 875 up towards the Ho Chi Minh Trail coming down from Laos and Cambodia up in there. And this was probably only about four and a half clicks off of the border with Laos and Cambodia. And it was a mountaintop that was 875 meters high. And the NVA regulars had prepared that for several years for the day that we were going to be trying to take it. Meaning that, Pete, they had themselves tunnels and uh, fortification and trenches and fields of fire set up right in front of major trees that had been there for 500 years well knowing that by the time we came up the hill, that we would have pounded it to pieces and those fields of fire would open up. So they didn't worry about what was in front of them. They knew that that was going to disappear, but they did worry about their fortification. So we literally fought ourselves in one of the longest running battles uh, outside of the Tet Offensive. We fought for a, almost a couple of weeks to get to the top. And on the morning of Thanksgiving Day, 1967, the 26th of November, we got to the top. And of course, like we would expect and did expect, they had us pretty well gritted in. So once we got to the top, they were dropping 82-millimeter mortar rounds back on us and B-40 rockets shooting those at us. And because I was trained as 11-Charlie mortar, I jumped in a pit with a lieutenant pits. Interesting you know, parallel there of names, but it was a mortar pit. And first Lieutenant Pitts was in there. He was on the uh, site and he said, Klug. And I jumped in and started cutting and charging rounds and dropping them. And as we were doing that, we both noticed because we were the two faces up front by the tube and we were dropping them as fast as we could get them charged. And uh, Lieutenant would say, Give me a head and I drop the next round. And we were watching them adjust their impact as they were marching them in on us. And we thought, well, let's don't stop. Let's keep on dropping them and hope they go over us. And uh, the sad reality is, mostly for and completely for Lieutenant Pitts, is that they were right on. And two rounds dropped right into our parapet, and the first round took the life of Lieutenant Pitts uh, right next to me. And this is pretty graphic, but what went through and around him is what got me the first time I was wounded on the hill that day. And so those rounds knocked me completely out, as well as Lieutenant Pitts also out of the parapet. So I came to after some period of time. How long? I don't know, because there was nobody there to count me in and out. But uh, I came to and got back into the fray. But um, being wounded is quite an experience. It's when finally the, the real reality of a combat situation finally comes full circle in your head of what's really going on. You can watch it happen to others, but when it happens to you, and none of it's easy, Pete. And those individuals that are listening this morning, they know that it isn't easy. God never designed us to do the things that we're called upon to do in a battlefield. But shrapnel that's in you is red hot. It's not just chunks of jagged steel, which they certainly are intense and painful for that very element. But when they blow up, they're red hot. The fragment metal is literally red hot. So there's a couple things that are happening to your body at that one instant. And that's a little bit unnerving also. I mean, there's no way to get away from that. It's in you and you're carrying that with you. But we fought again through the balance of the day and into the next day and right past the entire 26th of November, which was our Thanksgiving. It was Thanksgiving that day. And the next day they brought in some cold turkey and mashed potatoes and all the fixings and hot coffee for us. And as much as they could do as they choppered it in. And uh, Pete, it was those of us that sat there and ate in pretty much silence. There wasn't anybody griping about anything. Everything was good, Pete, because we had survived that that so very many, almost 600 individuals died of American troops there taking that hill. And so we were thankful that God had delivered us through another battle and many more to come. As I went on to the Tet Offensive, where the 68 Tet. And much to none of our surprise, because we knew things were different, because we could feel it in the jungle. We could feel the intensity of what was happening, of the transporting of materials and the kind of things that we were finding on the trail that were too hard to move. And they tried to conceal it to come back to get it. We knew something was happening but I was not at the level of rank that I had the privilege of knowing what battalion was telling us and what their suspect was, but we knew something was in the fix. But when uh, the Tet Offensive launched, things fell apart, and I could say that it was total anarchy. Our support dropped off because everybody was getting just the most intense contact that we had ever experienced. And so all the resupply stopped, all ammunition all food, water. And we were in the field. It wasn't like the movies where we got to, you know, get uh, three hots in a cot back at some fire base or battalion headquarters. The fact is, I only got out of the field the times I was wounded. And one time when we had been hit so hard that we hardly had a company any longer. And so we went back in to re-outfit and to re-fortify our company. But it wasn't like we got back and cooked steaks and drank beer and danced at the NCO club or the EM club or any of the other, you know, facilities that were either on or off base. I was in the field and that's where I lived in the jungle on the floor and and survived that. And so. One year finally passed, and, Pete, I'm getting ready to go home, and I heard that there was a new battalion chaplain possibly going to come by the mess hall, and if you want to visit this individual. This was on the PA system as I was evac'd out early at about 0, 0600 hours on a ammo resupply chopper, and my uh, company commander said, Klug, you're on. Get in. And so I grabbed what I could always carry, you know, my rucksack and my weapons and gave a couple of my best friends a big hug and told them to keep their head down and see you back on the civil side of the world and uh, jumped in. And so I'm eating my first bagged eggs, not out of a can, out of a sea rat can and having a hot cup of coffee. And. I thought, well, there's the Italian chaplain over there. I'm going to go say hi and wish him the best. And so he started to talk about his hometown. I was talking about my hometown and about his remorse of leaving and my anticipation of happiness, about being able to return after a year and surviving, getting wounded twice and being awarded the Purple Heart. And Pete, lo and behold, we came from the very same hometown. Oh, wow. Yeah, Southern California, a little town called La Habra. And I had actually sat. He was a Baptist pastor and uh, minister. And he said, well, Jim, what are you going to do now? And I said, chaplain, I said, I'm leaving. I said, I've just got my one year in. And I said, infantry. And as I was telling, it was a job interview for him. It was me just relating like I'm sharing with you, Pete, and the rest of our listeners. And so I literally gave him a hug and uh, said, chaplain, come home to us. And I'm standing in line on the steel matting in Campanary in Pleiku, Vietnam, ready to jump on a a smaller transport to go over to Cameron Bay to get on the big plane to head home, and still with dirt all over me and filthy and smelly and everything else, because we didn't shower. There was no shower. There's no cleaning. You know, we're filthy. And so uh, I uh, heard my name called out by somebody that had a voice that drew my immediate attention, and that was our battalion commander, along with Chaplain Harrison standing the battalion commanders there. And so Chaplain Harrison swung a pretty heavy uh, influence upon him, and he was a captain, Chaplain Harrison is. So they pulled me out of line and says, Kluge, you're staying. And I says, oh, I says, no, I says, yeah, you gotta get to go home. I just couldn't comprehend what they were saying. And finally, after it got through, real clear is I was moved from that line. Chaplain says, Jim, I need you. You've mastered the skills of survival here in Vietnam. And that will be your new job as a battalion chaplain's assistant for the 1st uh, of the 12th CAV unit of the 4th Infantry Division. So that's what I uh, became as a battalion chaplain's assistant. And that job might sound easy. And it was relatively compares to infantry, but I had two challenges. I had to keep not only myself alive, And it wasn't always easy because Chaplain Harrison was not content with being on the backside of a base camp. I think we were only in maybe as many times as I was in on the backside when I was in infantry. Chaplain wanted to be no less than a small fire base. And that was my job was to keep him connected with each and every company and squad and battalion in there in our 4th Infantry Division and the uh, two core area. So I did that, and I knew that I had one year left in the military, and I thought, well, there would be 24 months in country. And uh, I did keep chaplain alive, and and obviously I kept myself alive, (laughs) and it wasn't easy. The first convoy, I thought, well, what do I need any type of a weapon? I'm pretty good to go. I didn't have a weapon. I opted out. I wasn't required to carry a weapon, but it's pretty hard to defend somebody against somebody that is armed and wants to kill you. And so uh, after that first ambush, I decided, well, the very least I need is my 45." So they issued me a 45, and I carried a 45. And once again, that was called into action several times just to protect the chaplain and myself, along with being able to fill sandbags, because one of my jobs was when we got back into artillery fire bases up on the top of a hill that were way out in the field chaplain, we'd fly in and my job was to safe chaplain out if we were going to stay there for any period of time. If we were there just overnight, well, we'd bunk into somebody else's bunker and everybody would jump into another bunker and give chaplain a little bit of space. But Pete, the opportunity to bring hope to those men in the field and after they had participated in that most challenging thing that can probably happen to an individual is be in a combat environment And one, try to stay alive, and two, do the job that you've been trained to do, which is to take lives. There's a lot of conflict that happens in our heads, Pete. And then the ensuing mail uh, calls that bring letters of tragedy back home and one thing or the other, that was a constant situation that we uh, had to deal with. And I would connect the guys. Back in those days, we didn't have the kind of connections, and I'm thankful that those today in the military do have it. We had only back at the major bases do we have a Mars connection, which was shortwave radio, and they would get on a bounce link back to the United States. And sometimes it sounded like water rushing through a soda straw, a flood of water going through a soda straw between the static and everything else. And then to come in just like you and I are talking. And then other times, nothing. And so to communicate with somebody back stateside, and they would get a ham operator, and those were individuals back in the United States that were uh, set and dedicated to help in these Mars connections, and then they would place a call to a family member and link that all together. You can only imagine, I mean, the techno part of that, Pete, you being skilled as you are with all of the elements of electronics and communications, and it was quite a job, Pete.
0: Well, Jim, you know, I'll tell you, it seems like that what you've been through is a lot of hell, and I'm definitely glad that you're still here with us today after all that you did. Vietnam was tough on so many people, and so many people were injured or killed over there, and I'm just thankful for those that did make it back, and I'm really proud of you for the fact that you came out of it okay. I mean, some people come back, and they're never okay. Okay. And what you've been able to do is really, you know, survive that, come back, be here, be present, and help those of today. And you were really right in the thick of it. And I'll have to say that, you know, the entire time that I was in the military, I was in some sort of support. I was in the Air Wing the entire time I was in the military, so I was always I behind the lines. You know, the helos or planes—they go up, they go out, they do their thing, and they come back. So I never once in the entire time I've been in the military had to go through anything like you did. So it's people like you really that paved the way for people like me to be able to come in and serve. And it is certainly an honor just working with you and talking with you and being here to help, you know, the mission that you created to continue to go forward. Thank you, Jim, for everything you've done.
1: Well, Pete, you're kind in those statements and I just appreciate it. An individual asked me not many days ago, he said, what does it mean to you when somebody says, thank you for your service? And that level of impact when somebody says that to you is amazing. I'll go out today to have lunch with one of our board members, Steve Deaton. And Steve is a tremendous individual that flew in Vietnam over 600 killer hunter missions on a UH UH-1B Huey helicopter and shot down twice and air metal and Purple Heart and saved his crew by auto-gyrating down and crashing and then trying to avoid being captured by the NVA, doing a run through the jungle, run through the jungle. The things that happen, Pete, I count your service because I said it earlier, Pete, there isn't one combat boot on the ground, no matter what branch. And it could be any, you know, it could be the Navy. I mean, look at the support that's necessary there. And those that come up to me and say, hey, I was in the Navy. And I said, oh, you moved the real heavy stuff, you know, and gave us air support because a lot of our 105s, they would come off of a carrier deck. They'd fly in so far and come on up and dodge, you know, just imagine flying at 400 miles an hour, three, 400 foot off the deck trying to avoid all the small arms fire. Because, of course, the higher you are, the more targets you're going to pick up because of just the geometry of being able to be seen. And so, Pete, the stuff that happens, the Air Force and the uh, Marine Corps that brought us in and the Navy, we first landed at Cameron Bay and the New Jersey was off the coastline. I don't know how many miles, but that's the one with the 16-inch guns. And I'll tell you what, pretty amazing stuff. We would hear this horrific screech going across the sky up above us as we were just in an orientation out in the sand pit out there at Cameron Bay, and we were told what those things were. you could see them i mean it's rare you can see an artillery round going through the air, but you see a in excess of a two thousand pound slug of steel going through the air, sounding like a, a greyhound bus going past you inches away that's a sixteen inch round from the Navy. So the things that happen over there, Pete, the support factor of 7 to 12 to 1, depending on you know where you are and what you're doing, again, it couldn't be done. There's different jobs, different MOSs, different capacities of support. But Pete, everybody, there isn't one person, even if you're stateside, and I say even, no, if you're stateside versus in-country or near in-country or one of the support bases near a conflict. Every single individual is carrying an equal load and making it all happen. That's the chain. That's the unbroken chain. There's none that can exist without the whole sum total. And once that chain breaks down at any point, and that was the Tet Offensive that I alluded to earlier, when we couldn't get supplies, Pete, it came down to, and this is the tough one, we got so close that we were hand-to-hand at times, when total Nation anarchy happens. And that's what the TED Offensive was. It was as crazy as you can possibly imagine. And so God delivered me from that. And as you also said, Pete, that through all of this, here we are today. Here you are. I'm going to close here pretty quick about me, but I want to lead into now American Heroes Network has been almost seven years in the middle of supporting veterans and those that love and support. Those veterans, the wives, the girlfriends, the parents, the neighbors, the back home support is absolutely imperative. And Pete, American Heroes Network is that one place where we bring current up-to-date information of ways by which our veteran community and those that love and support them can find the necessary tools to bring that total integration back into civilian life from that deployment and that commitment into a successful reintegration. And Pete, your life has been surrounded in doing that very same thing of helping veterans to achieve that, the highest level of reintegration and after they serve our great nation. American Heroes Network is dedicated by predominantly military veterans. We only have two that are not. And so those two that are not, they are as supportive as any individual could possibly be. And our effort at American Heroes Network, with your talents, Pete, and your background of service. Pete, tell us about you. I've got to tell our audience first. When you and I first spoke... And I've said this, and I'm just exaggerating this a little bit, but the enthusiasm level that Pete brought in our very first conversation about the possibility of Pete being part of the, and the main part of our effort team with American Heroes Network, I sensed at that moment that if I was asking for Pete to buy into this relationship, that Pete would have said, I'm all in, because Pete's heart is totally here with veterans. This is a veteran that is totally given to helping veterans. Pete gets up and thinks, how can he help a veteran today? And I couldn't be more pleased with who and what Pete Bloom brings to our network at American Heroes Network. Pete, I'm going to swing this around now. (laughs) Tell us about you. Tell us about the person that you are, why your passion is here with American Heroes Network and in your life. How did that develop, Pete? What brought you to such a keen, sharp edge? of recognizing the service and sacrifice of veterans and wanting to provide as much as you possibly could for them.
0: Well, Jim, I'll have to say thank you first, of course, because uh, I think you gave a better introduction of me than I give of myself. So (laughs) Um, basically, I served 11 years in the military and actually four of that was in the Navy and seven of that was in the Marine Corps. So I'm I'm a dual branch, been to boot camp twice. Yes, that was really fun because, you know, (laughs) Marines say we're not accepting anybody else's boot camp, so you got to do this all over again. I started at 17, right out of high school. I wanted to join uh, the military. My dad is actually a Marine veteran, and I think he inspired me to want to join. And I had a best friend that had said that he wanted to go in, and the combination of that, I just went for it. So I started off in the Navy, went to boot camp in Great Lakes. Became a parachute rigger, got stationed overseas with Air Wing, a unit called VRC50, and that was really great. And later, I'm sure you know down the road through podcasting, as we share history, some history there that I can share about being there in Crigador Island and things like that. After the Navy, and you know, I decided to get out and uh, wanted to go back home to Cincinnati, Ohio. Not a whole lot for a parachute rigger to do there, so I ended up deciding to come back in the military. The Navy said, "Sorry, we're full." They didn't need any parachute riggers. So I walked across the hall to the Marine recruiter, and he said, come on, yeah, we have the same job. And I joined the Marines. So that's where I spent the next seven years. For me, that was great as well. I enjoyed all my time in the military. I enjoy serving. I enjoy helping people. I enjoyed the mission of protecting America. I went to Paris Island for boot camp. Got probably the best shape of my life. Great funny story there is, they knew I was in the Navy. They you know, either had information or intel or figured it out, or maybe it was just the tattoos that I had. So in order to harass me as best as they could, occasionally here and there, they would make me sing Popeye the Sailor Man so that they could have a <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing. From there, boot camp, I went and I got uh, logistics training in Coronado, California. I was in the air wing the whole entire time after that. I got stationed at Camp Pendleton. I was with a Cobra and Huey unit, HMLA 367, otherwise known as Scarface. I've been deployed overseas to Japan. I've been deployed on the Tarawa. Uh, I got to see most of the world. Um, I think most memorable for me was Australia. I stopped in port there. And uh, speaking of that, actually, something funny, something interesting, talking about seeing the world, I actually got to be on America's Funniest People our Marine unit, HMLA 367, was chosen to be featured on an episode of America's Funniest People. And we basically sang a song called I Get Around by the Beach Boys. <laughs> and that was pretty awesome. And as a matter of fact, I will share that link in the show notes so that people can see you later and watch the video. <laughs> That's great. So after leaving HMLA 367, my next duty station was in Quantico, Virginia. So I went from California to Virginia. Wow. I was stationed at HMX 1 which is the president's helicopter squadron. And I really enjoyed that. Like you were saying, every single person who's in the military and every branch, their mission is important as a whole to make things happen and to make things come together cohesively. But being at that particular unit and basically working for the president really made me feel like, wow, my mission is super important. It wasn't like we got to hang out or anything, just so you know, so we weren't buddies. But I will have to say that being in that unit and taking care of logistics for the squadron and the helicopters and everything that needed to happen was a serious honor for me. I did get to go to the White House a few times. Even got to take my kids to an Easter egg hunt on the White House lawn. Uh, Went there for Christmas. And the best part, I guess, at the very end of serving for that unit was, as you had put time into serving, they gave you something out of it on the exit end, which was, You got to go to the Oval Office to meet the president and have a photo opportunity with them. So I got to do that. I've got a great picture on my wall. It was really something that was pretty awesome. I would say basically at that point, I had decided for a few reasons that I wanted to get out of the military. I decided to settle down in Florida, where I've been ever since. I got tired of snow everywhere else. Being in Florida and I moved from logistics into IT because I see it as something that I really like to do and I was kind of doing it on the side in the military, like a collateral duty. So I'm an IT guy. I have been for a long time. I also do training and my core thing that I do that makes my heart feel the best is helping veterans. I do that down here in Tampa, Florida as best I can in several different ways. I'm involved in several different organizations that are all geared toward helping veterans and specifically transitioning veterans. Because the the thing about it is when someone comes to get out of the military, the military doesn't really teach them how to transition. They don't teach them how to start a new career. They go through a TAPS class these days. I don't even think you had TAPS when you probably got out. Yeah, you sit down there for, I don't know, one day, two days, however it is for each branch of the service. And they tell you all kinds of things like you need a resume, you need to do this, you need to do that. All the different stuff. So you have to sit through that and then they're like, okay, great. See you. And uh, that's pretty much it. Now, there are many organizations out there that are trying to help with transition to take it to the next level, to make it better so that people don't feel left alone or lost or, or get depressed and all that. Some of the ones that I work with down here in Tampa, one is Project Transition USA. And what we do is train transitioning veterans how to use LinkedIn so they can online network and really be able to connect and communicate on there. Another that I work with is 4Block. And 4Block is basically a comprehensive career readiness program for veterans. And it takes them through things like salary negotiation and resume and LinkedIn. It's just the whole gamut of everything that you could need to know to learn to transition. Another one is Action Zone Tampa. And that's basically, there are some people that get out of the military that say, I would like to start my own business. I never want to work for anybody again. So with Action Zone, I'm a trainer that helps veterans learn how to start a business. So that's fun as well. The last couple of things that I do that I definitely enjoy is I enjoy mentoring veterans. I do that on a regular basis. So I work with Veterati and it's basically veterans can sign up for Veterati and that allows them to reach out and connect with as many mentors as they need. So whatever industry you're thinking about getting in, whatever job you're thinking about getting, you can talk to somebody on the outside who's already there and kind of get help along the way of these are the steps you need to take. And then I guess lastly, I'll mention I work with a nonprofit called Racing for Vets. So veterans that are interested in you know race cars and the motorsports industry, you know, this is an opportunity for them to get out. And then get involved in something like that. And that's how we really need to do it for our veterans and their families. We need to take what they love, take what they enjoy, find a place on the outside for them to plug in and be part of community, whether that's race cars or whatever. There are places out there for us to connect them and help them be part of community so that they know that they're never alone. And that is my mission in life is to help every veteran
1: and their family not feel alone. Pete, that's an amazing dedication that you have. And I think that's probably the universal thing that those of us that are on the board and those that are concerned and leading out in American Heroes Network, that's the one underlying commonality that I think we all share is that it is, it's a chain effort of collaboration of all of the participants, the board members to help Every single veteran, because there's so many ways by which we come out uh, you know, you talk about the reintegration and I was sitting at LA International Airport, three and one half days out of the jungle. I still had red, just dirt in my knuckles and all the little, like if I was a Sharpei dog with all the folds of skin, I'd probably weigh an extra 20 pounds with all the dirt still embedded in me because even after a shower a hot shower, one of the few showers, hot showers I got while I was there in clean water, rather than looking like mild coffee water, I was still filthy. And so the TAPS program is, I think, an outpouring of reality. The government recognized that we can't just pull an individual straight out of deployment with the military and drop them back into society and expect them to get along. And I think, Pete, if we carry that down to our, where we are with American Heroes Network, We were formed for the sole purpose of supporting our veteran community as they are either deployed and or come back from deployment and service for this nation. And trying to give them each individual, and again, regardless of what branch or what level of service, everybody has some need on there, Pete. And there's so many reasons. You and I have spoke, Pete, so many times already as we talk about what's our major thrust for American Heroes Network. And certainly the one that lies foremost in all of our minds is the survival of every veteran emotionally and physically as they return into society. And that transition is a real mess. It's a big task. It's something that doesn't happen easy. It takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of individuals to be integrated into it. As we start reaching out to the VA and I was talking to uh, the Veterans Administration the other day, and Pete, one of our next broadcasts in line will probably be about veterans' suicide issues. Because there's nothing that's more tragic than the loss of a life of a veteran to such despair that death is preferential to life. And I've got to say to our community of listeners, we're going to be all over this. We're going to find the ways by which to bring the best information and support to each and every veteran. And those that are out there supporting them so that they're aware of exactly how to interface with their veteran and how to give them those things that are going to give them the ultimate hope and help them making that transition. So, Pete, we have a tremendous challenge. It's a beautiful challenge because I can't think of anything more rewarding than what we have set out for ourselves, Pete. And I come back to you and say, Pete, there's no better person that I know of. And I believe it was an absolute blessing. Frankly, as I've shared with you, there's been several individuals I've spoken to and different ways we could have gone. But clearly, Pete, when I spoke with you, I knew that you were the individual to make this happen for American Heroes Network. And this is a long deployment that we have. you recognize that? We've got seven years worth of history behind us. And, Pete, we're just starting this new chapter. We've upgraded the website with Mary Crozier in your own effort, Pete. You've brought the website into something now that we want to make it interactive and make it speak to each and every one of the veterans or those that love and support again, where they can find ways by which to help their veteran and or help themselves. And like you said, Pete, we will have all of our podcast uh, archived as well as we'll have resources. We're just in the early stages now of reaching out to those organizations, both military and governmental and private organizations that will come to the immediate assistance of a veteran and want to help them. And that's got to be the basis by which things can start to heal in a veteran's mind.
0: Jim, I agree with you completely. You know, I think our missions align and our goals align. The fact that I feel like this is a blessed mission and it's going to be successful. And I think this has been a great first episode. As the leader of American Heroes Network, I appreciate you coming on today to help express what it is that you want to continue that you've been doing for so long. I think we've clearly let everyone know that we just want to be there for them and help them. And there's going to be a lot more great content coming in as much detail as possible about how we can help them and their families be successful. So thanks for coming on today and helping me launch this. And I look forward to the next episode.
1: Thanks, Pete. And God bless America and God bless our efforts. Thank you, Pete.
0: In this episode, we learned about the badge of military merit that was created by General George Washington, which today is known as the Purple Heart. We also learned about the mission and the passion behind American Heroes Network and why we want to help veterans and their families and how we're going to provide valuable information and resources that you can also find on our website. Today we mentioned Project Transition USA, Racing for Vets, 4Block, Action Zone Tampa, and Vidorati. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Be sure to keep coming back each week for more great episodes. If you want to talk about something you learned today, if you have questions, or if you would like to be a guest on our podcast, go to AmericanHeroesNetwork.com and click on Contact Us. Thank you for listening.